mean, between the baptisms and the communion, I'm going to try and keep this sermon short so that the service doesn't run too long. Um, but I did pick this Sunday to read six different psalms to you, so it's going <laughs> to... I'm trying, y'all. Um, I, I, I do want to... I mean, I'm preaching on the psalms because I think they are... Um, they're, they're one of the most underutilized tools that Christians have access to. And there's 150 of them, so if I want to preach on them without taking up like six months, I have to read a lot of them to you at once. But, you know, the, if you're reading along in our one-year Bibles... One of the things that annoys me the most about those Bibles, and I love them in general, but the problem is the psalms you get are always like little snippets. They're portions of a psalm, and sometimes you forget what the whole thing says. And they're not meant to be read that way. Uh, They're really meant to be read the whole psalm at once, even the really long ones. And the thing is, we we don't pay much attention to them, and we're kind of unusual in that we don't pay much attention to them because for thousands of years— First, Jewish thought and then Christian thought and belief and practice were shaped by the Psalms. They are the prayer book of the Bible. They are a combination of prayers and poetry and hymns all rolled up into one. In fact, if you go to a Catholic church today, every hymn they sing is a psalm set to music because that's part of how they're meant to be used. Jesus would have memorized the Psalms and used them as his prayers. So would all of his disciples, so would Paul, so would Christians for a thousand. It's only been within the last hundred years or so that Christians have stopped using the Psalms as part of their worship and as part of their everyday life. And we are spiritually poorer for it. Most of us maybe know Psalm 23, which is great, it's beautiful. But there are so many other Psalms, and they are so useful to us. It's not just that they are beautiful to read. It's that reading them continuously actually begins to shape the way that you think about who God is and who you are and what it means to have faith and what God is doing in the world. <clears throat> For most of, of Christian history, it's been a widespread practice to pray through all 150 psalms over the course of a month. So you do five a day. And then the next month you start over until eventually they become a part of you and you know them so well that, that when the moment arrives that, is, that you need to pray and you don't always have the words to say, one of those psalms will pop into your mind and give you the words that you needed. That's what they're there for. And so you have this mix and some psalms are really happy and, and some of them are less happy. And there are Psalms of praise, and there are psalms of lament. There are these things called imprecatory psalms, which are psalms of cursing, where you curse your enemies. Did you know you can curse your enemies? It's fine. Um, Some of the psalms do it. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, There's psalms for for every possible occasion. And I can tell you, one of my very best friends told me not too long ago that when he and his wife suffered a miscarriage a few years ago, the only way he was able to maintain his faith in that moment was by praying through the psalms. That's the power they have, and we mostly ignore them. These prayers, they are, they are essential to our life and our faith, and when we don't use them often enough, we are missing out on one of the richest resources we have at our disposal. So I'm going to read six different psalms. They're all a different type of psalm, and I tried to keep them fairly short. You're welcome. So this first one is Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. 
Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. If you hadn't figured it out, this is a psalm of praise. It opens and begins with, in Hebrew, the word hallelujah, which literally means praise the Lord. And it's not a statement. It's not an exclamation. It's a command. It is an order to praise God. This psalm takes God and contrasts him with the mortal people who rule over us and have power over us in this life. And it provides hope in doing so by saying, look, if you think this guy is bad, you don't have to worry because look at all his flaws and see all the ways in which he fails you, all the ways in which he lets you down, all the ways in which you have no hope that this person can help you. And then look at the God who made you because he can do all those things and he is and he will. Praise the Lord. You don't have to worry about this prince or this king or this president or this senator because at the end of the day, they are not the ones who rule over you. Yeah. What a great prayer to use. What a great prayer to recall as we approach an election season, right? But it's good at all times to remind us of who we really serve and who's really in charge here. And that at the end of all things, it's God who's in charge. So now we'll shift gears a bit. Go to Psalm 6. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me and save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning all night long. I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish, and they will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. This is what's called an individual lament psalm, written by one person about their individual struggle, something that they are dealing with. And there is this, this sense in the midst of it where, where, where he starts off sort of begging God to, to stop, begging God to deliver him, begging God not to discipline him in his anger. And, and there's this sense of it's, it's almost as if he's appealing to God's love and saying, Lord, don't you love me? And if you love me, shouldn't you be saving me from this? And haven't you ever felt that way? Haven't we all felt that way? Haven't we all 
had those moments where we've really wondered if God is as good as he says he is, if he loves us as much as he says he does, if he can do all the things he says he can do, shouldn't he be saving me from this? I don't think there is a person alive who hasn't felt that. You get that feeling when, when the doctor gives you news you didn't want to hear. When, when someone you love passes away too soon or when whatever circumstances are making your life miserable just seem overwhelming. But we all hit that moment. And evidently, God's people have felt that for thousands of years and they've all wondered the same thing. And amazingly, the psalm ends with the psalmist praising God anyway and, and reassuring himself that God has heard his prayer and that God will still do something. He doesn't know when. doesn't know what it will be. But he has enough trust and faith in the God he worships to believe that even as he can't comprehend why God is allowing him to suffer like this, God has heard his prayer. And somehow, some way, sometime, God will do something. And that's not always the most reassuring of things. Because we like to know that God's going to fix it right here and right now. But this is a desperate prayer. And it's a good one for us to pray in those moments because it reminds us that even if we don't know when God is going to fix it, even if we don't know when God is going to save us or, or, or end whatever situation is causing us so much pain and turmoil, it reminds us that God is still there. If nothing else, God is with us. The Psalms are full of these Psalms of lament. Prayers that are, have been used for generations by people who in the midst of their pain and their suffering had no other words of their own to say and they turned to these and cried out to God in pain. So we go to Psalm 44, which is similar, but a bit different. We have heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. With your hand you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors. You crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. You are my king and my God who decrees victories for Jacob. Through you we push back our enemies. Through your name we trample our foes. I put no trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory, but you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. And God, we make our boast all day long, and we will praise your name forever. But now you have rejected us and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy. Our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance and gained nothing from their sale. You have made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. The people shake their heads at us. I live in disgrace all day long and my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge." 
All this came upon us, though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it since he knows the secrets of the heart? Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. So whereas Psalm 6 is an individual lament, this is a group lament. And it had a specific use in that they would recite this after suffering a military defeat. The army and the people would gather together and pray this psalm aloud. There's this this sense of like hurt confusion in the psalm. Right? God, we trusted you. Why didn't you save us? Why did you let this happen? We did everything right. So what gives? And haven't you ever felt that way too? Don't you imagine that the people of Uvalde feel that way right now? Lord, why would you let this happen? Didn't you know what was going to happen? Weren't we good enough? And you notice it doesn't end. Most of the Psalms end with, with like at least a little bit of praise and hope, but this one doesn't. This one ends with this demand. Wake up, God. You can see what's going on here, God. Wake up and do something about it. What a great prayer to pray when you don't understand what's going on, when you don't understand why God is letting the whole community suffer, when you don't understand what God is up to and you can't see where he's at work. Wake up, God. See, it's not the case that God doesn't actually see what's going on or that God is somehow actually sleeping. But the problem is if we feel like that, why not say it? There's no reason to hold back. God knows what's on your heart. If that's how you feel, you might as well say it aloud. What you get when you start seeing this sort of raw emotion and all this deep and painful honesty in the Psalms is you see the level of intimacy that the people have with their God. The willingness to go and wrestle with him. That's literally what their nation's name means. That if they don't think God is holding up his end of the bargain, they'll go to the mat with him. And there's something about that that God seems to like. Because it tells him that his people do have a sense of what justice looks like and a sense of what righteousness looks like. They can recognize when things aren't happening the way they're supposed to be happening. And even if their anger is misdirected when it's aimed at God, at least they're angry for the right reasons. And God still comes and responds and acts in the midst of that. But there's also just something cathartic about being able to go to the God who you trusted for your protection and lay into him like that. It may not be his fault, but he's a big boy. He can take it if you yell at him a little bit. There is something about having that openness and that willingness to vent yourself at God like that that actually deepens 
the trust and deepens the relationship. It's the same way that, you know, we all know that like married couples who never fight, they're doomed, right? Married couples that fight usually are going to be okay because at least they trust each other enough to fight over the things that matter to them. The same thing applies here. Do you trust God enough to fight with him? Because so often the reason we don't actually bother to do it is not, not that we uh, really truly trust that God has everything in hand, but it's that we don't trust that God will still love us and be good to us if we say things like this to him. And it's okay. Sometimes life doesn't go the way you want. Sometimes you really are beaten down and defeated and discouraged, and you really don't know why God hasn't helped you out like you thought he would. And it's okay to say those things to God. In fact, even just the act at the end of that psalm, that demand for God to wake up and help us, that in and of itself is an expression of trust and love. Because they wouldn't be asking God to do that if they didn't think he could and he would. Do you see? So we move on to Psalm 83. And I promise we will end with happy psalms, okay? Just bear with me. Psalm 83. Oh God, do not remain silent. Do not turn a deaf ear. Do not stand aloof, O God. See how your enemies growl, how your foes rear their heads. With cunning they conspire against your people. They plot against those you cherish. Come, they say, let us destroy them as a nation so that Israel's name is remembered no more. With one mind they plot together, they form an alliance against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, of Moab and the Hagrites, Byblos, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, with the people of Tyre, even Assyria has joined them to reinforce Lot's descendants. Do to them as you did to Midian, as you did to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who perished at Endor and became like dung on the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, Let us take possession of the pasture lands of God. Make them like tumbleweed, O my God, like the chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest or a flame sets the mountains ablaze. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Cover their faces with shame, Lord, so that they will seek your name. May they be ever ashamed and dismayed. May they perish in disgrace. Let them know that you, whose name is the Lord, that you alone are most high over all the earth. So this is an imprecatory psalm. It's a a psalm of cursing your enemies. And there's not a whole lot of them in the Bible, but Psalms 59, 69, 109, and 137 all do similar things. And believe it or not, this is like the least dark of all of them. Right? You've got Psalms where they're literally asking for God to take the babies of their enemies and smash them against the rocks. I mean, they get really dark and violent and cruel. And you kind of wonder when you read them, why is that in the Bible? Does God really want for his people to be asking him to do those sorts of things? The answer is no. God would really prefer you to follow his example and offer mercy and forgiveness and compassion. But if we're all honest with ourselves, that's not always what we want to do, is it? I mean, think, 
Think for a minute about the school shooter in Uvalde. Isn't there some part of you, maybe deep down, maybe that you don't want to acknowledge is there, that would like for him to suffer? And I'm betting for the parents of those kids, that part of them that wants him to suffer is not that deep down. This is our natural response to evil and to injustice, to cruelty. We don't want to offer forgiveness and compassion at first. We want justice. We want vengeance. We want to see the bad people suffer like we think they're supposed to. And in all likelihood, you will always find it difficult to get to a place where you genuinely desire mercy and forgiveness for those you think are evil until you are willing to actually let yourself acknowledge just how much you want them to suffer first. Look inside of yourself and see that part of you that wants to cause them just as much pain as they have caused others. When you read psalms like this one or when you go and read Psalm 137 and and hear them wishing that someone would, would slaughter the babies of their enemies, you recoil in horror at that. And you're supposed to. But you're also supposed to recognize that that psalm reflects some of your deepest desires as well. That there is a little bit of that desire in every single one of us. And until we are willing to acknowledge it, not just to ourselves, but also to God, we are going to have a hard time overcoming it. And one of the reasons we don't want to do it as well, just, just like with demanding that God do things we think he should do, just like with coming, coming back and fighting with God over the circumstances of our life, one of the reasons we don't like to admit this is that we're, we're, we've got that sense of shame about what God himself will think of us if we ask that, if we ask him to hurt the people we want to see hurt, if we ask God to bring justice in a way that is brutal and visible to us all. We're worried what God's going to think of us. The thing is, though, he already knows that's there. There's no sense in hiding it. And there's no shame in it either because it's part of all of us. And so again, just the willingness on the part of the psalmist to express that out loud to God is itself a form of praise an acknowledgement of the deep trust that he has and of the understanding that he has with God, the understanding that God knows all the deepest parts of his heart and there's nothing he can hide. So why not turn that over to God and let him deal with it? And now we'll go to some of the happier ones. We'll end with a couple. So in Psalm 20, May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. 
Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. This is a royal psalm. And you would recite this as the king is leading the army out into battle. So it's sort of like the, the juxtaposition of Psalm 44. But in, in it you see this incredible trust, right? We're going out to battle and, and we're doing it because this is the right thing to do and God is on our side. And so we don't have to trust in our chariots and in our weapons and in our fighting ability because all of our trust, all of our trust is in God. And because all of our trust is in God, we know everything will be okay. How often do we really actually have that level of deep trust that if God is with us, everything will be okay? Even, even if things aren't turning out the way we would like them to, how often do we trust that even in that moment, whatever God is up to, it's going to be okay? And so finally, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hearts, clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him who see your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your hands, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. This would have been sung as the Ark of the Covenant was being carried into the temple. This is what you're seeing when the, the one item which represents the physical presence of God on earth is carried into the place of worship as the King of Glory comes in. And so in the middle of it, it seems like it's describing like the, the conditions you have to meet before you can enter the temple. But in the very beginning, all that talk of the mountains and of all creation sort of implies that actually... All the world is God's temple, and therefore one day only those with clean hands and a pure heart will be left in God's temple, in all of creation. It's this beautiful song of hope that the King of glory is going to come in the fullness of his presence into the midst of his creation. That when he does, all the bad things become untrue. It is this incredible expression of hope in the final promises of God that one day he is coming. The king of glory is coming into his temple. And we get to be there when it happens. And so in these psalms you get this incredible spectrum of praise. You have the psalmist praising God just for who God is. 
because he recognizes the goodness of God. You have the psalmist praising God when everything around him is falling apart and his personal life seems terrible and he can't figure out what God is up to. You have the psalmist praising God when it seems like the whole nation is in trouble and the whole community is falling apart and they have no idea what God is doing. You have the psalmist praising God when they see injustice and all they want in that moment is for God to come down and smite his enemies and you have them praising God when they're about to go face a great challenge in battle and you have them praising God in all things. That's what the Psalms teach us. How to praise God in every conceivable situation. And there are always going to be times when we we find ourselves wanting to pray and we just don't have the words to do it. And that's what the Psalms are there for. To give us the words to pray when the words that we can think of won't suffice to teach us how to praise God in the good times and in the bad times. It's because he had the Psalms memorized that the Apostle Paul could say, Rejoice in the Lord always. Because he knew exactly what to pray in order to rejoice in God and to praise him when he was locked up in prison, when he was being beaten, when he was threatened with execution. He knew how to pray in those moments. And he knew how to praise the goodness of God even when nothing about him seemed all that good. May we who are still God's people learn to praise God in all times, in all places, no matter what is going on around us. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.